Well, uh, here we are in Psalms. Um, I've learnt that Psalms are a bit of a palate cleanser between series. Um, so we could call this a Psalm Sorbet, uh, to cleanse our palates between uh, Acts and then Romans. And actually, it's a bit of a teaspoon of a Psalm Sorbet because we're doing 16 verses of a giant Psalm. So strap yourself in for that. It's going to be a good time. Well, as Christians, how should we relate to the law? I've got some hot shots from uh, some New Testament verses that are going to give us a good idea. What about Galatians 3, verse 10? This is what it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay? What about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6? It says, He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, that is, the law, but the Spirit. For the letter, the law, it kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, Now if the ministry that brought death, the law, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? He's saying, you know, how much better is the new covenant from the old? Romans 6, have a look at that. Or maybe just listen to it as I read it. From verse 14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. He's saying, the jurisdiction of the law, you could say, you're not under that anymore. You're under the jurisdiction of grace. Well, this is kind of awkward then, as we come to Psalm 119. Because it's a psalm about how great the law is. It's the biggest chapter in the whole Bible and each of the 176 verses is dedicated to the law. And it's one giant acrostic poem that methodically works through each of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet as if to say from A to Z, the law is awesome. And actually, in fact, the language is a fair bit stronger than that. Listen to these verses. Maybe just listen to them if you can find them in Psalm 19, 119. Go for it. But verse 20 says, I am continually overcome with longing for your judgments. Verse 47, I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. What about verse 97? It says, How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Verse 103, How sweet is your word to my mouth, which I taste. It's sweeter than honey in my mouth. What about 113? It says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Wow. Now, a few images come to my mind when I read this psalm. Uh, The first is a love letter. This guy just writing down everything he loves about his wife. And he's just sitting down and goes, I love your smile. I love your quick wit. I love the way that you dance. People are stupid if they can't see how good you are, but I love you. That's the first image. The second image is um, the classic petals of a flower scene. She loves me. She loves me not. Except this is a huge, it's a giant... Sunflower petal with 167 verses on it, and every petal is, I'll love you. I'll love you even more. I'll love you the most. I'll love you when I'm awake. I'll love you when I'm asleep. I'll love you more than falafel. I'll love you more than kebabs. I'll love you more than lamb koftas. I'll love you more than all the food at Big Day Out, and that's saying something. Oh, 
I love you. The third thing it reminds me of is Mort from Madagascar, the before animals arrive, and the lemurs are trying to work out what they think of these animals. And Mort says, you like them? You hate them compared to how much I love them? It's as if this psalm is saying, you like the law? You hate the law compared to how much I love the law? There could not be a more positive praise of the law in the whole Bible than in Psalm 119. How do we deal with this tension then when the law seems to get such a bad rap in the New Testament? Are we supposed to just ignore Psalm 119 and go, oh, yeah, 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 old old covenant, the law, yeah, Old Testament? This can flavor our whole attitude to the entire whole Old Testament, can't it? We can say, redundant covenant of works, not of grace. We're Christians set free from the law. So back to my starting question. How should Christians relate to the law? Well, to answer that question, we're going to work through the first 16 verses of Psalm 119 because we're convicted that it's Christian scripture. That one Timothy, uh, 2, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse is so important for our conviction of saying all scripture is God-breathed breathed, and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. And we're going to see it's not redundant. And Psalm 119 has some important things to say that we need to hear. So make sure that you have Psalm 119 in front of you. My first thing that we're going to see that Psalm 119 has to say is that the law is good. Track with me in verse 1 of Psalm 119. Pick it up if you have it there in front of you. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. Now stop there. There's a lot of walking and way and following in those verses, isn't there? This is a psalm that's very much a sequel to Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not walk in the company of the wicked. They're like a tree planted by streams. The law is pictured as some delightful path that we can walk on, a clear path. Think of Wentworth Falls. Think of, um, instead of the, the track that it is, think of it without a stone on the path, without a root to trip you up, perfectly even stairs, a rail to hold onto, and a beautiful view to keep you going along the way. The law is not some abstract obstacle course put over that path designed to make life harder, you know, a vault to jump, a hoop to dive, a a beam to balance on as you go through your life. Sometimes we can think of Old Testament laws and and think, yeah, well, food laws, ceremonial laws, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't wear mixed material in your clothing, and it can seem pretty abstract, can't it? But don't lose the forest for the trees. Those, uh, uh, Those laws were part of what made the Israelites recognizably distinct from the world around them. It was like a giant signpost saying, hey, you want to know what one of Yahweh's people looks like? It's me. Come have a look. Look no further. And when you get to the heart of the law and the whole of the law, the law is not abstract. The law is about living life well. There's a pattern to creation. And the law is its blueprint. And if you live according to the law, you live according to creation 
and if you live in relationship with the creator of creation as well. And if you live apart from the law, you'll begin to find life exceptionally hard. Life will become less of a clear path and more of a thicket, a difficult trek through the undergrowth, a crawl through the brambles. And you might think, ah, that's just not true. Living life as a Christian is hard. It's giving Christianity up that makes it way easier. It's giving Christianity up that makes it life so much easier. Now, if the law promises a clear path, why have I struggled so much my whole life? Being a Christian isn't easy. Even Jesus says that we have to count the costs. We will lose family and friends. The world will hate us. And being a Christian can be hard, can't it? But that doesn't mean it's not good. Better a life in opposition to the world around us but in relationship with the eternal God who created us. Think of that Wentworth Falls bush track again. Just because it's clear and it's well kept and the stairs are even, there's a rail, does that make it easy? Of course not. But it sure is better than being off the tracks. Living for the acceptance of the world can be easy, but it's not eternally rewarding. And living for the acceptance of the God of the universe might be hard sometimes, but it is eternally rewarding. Now notice that all these verses that we've looked at so far are in the third person. I'm going to smash you with a bit of grammar occasionally through the sermon. They're in the third person. That's he, she, it, they, them. So look in verse 2. It says, happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. Now, this means the psalmist is thinking of somebody else. The psalmist is thinking of the ideal lawkeeper. The ideal lawkeeper will be happy or blessed because they are blameless. The ideal lawkeeper will do nothing wrong. And the psalmist knows that he's not the ideal lawkeeper, which is the second thing this psalm has to say, is that we can't keep the law. As we look at the next verses, in verse 4 onwards, notice the transition from the third person, they, to the first person, I, me. Verse 4, you have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes. You can see the grief there, can't you? Verse 6, Then I would not be ashamed when I think of all your commands. Clearly, as the psalmist thinks about all the commands of God, he's ashamed to think of the commands that he's failed to keep. And it's important to look at the psalmist's next move. Realising he can't keep the law, that he's failed some of the commands, what does he do? Does he have a throwaway attitude to it all? Like he's on a diet and he slips up, so he just goes on one giant binge. I've broken the law, I may as well give it all up. We might think of James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. So we might think, what's the use then, trying to keep it then? Now, that's not the point James is making. He's arguing for proof of guilt, not license to sin. And that's not where the psalmist goes next either. 
which is the third thing that this psalm is going to say to us, which is we still commit to keeping the law. Just because we can't keep the law doesn't mean that it's not good and we should remain committed to it. Have a look in verse 7. It says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. The instinct of the psalmist is to say, I'll even praise your judgments because they're righteous. And I'm assuming he even includes judgments against his own failure to keep the law. The psalmist doesn't confuse his ability to keep the law and the law's goodness. Isn't that amazing? If we can't keep a rule, we say, oh, the rule's stupid. But actually, the psalmist can say, if only I was committed to keeping your law. The problem's not with the law, the problem is with me. And this is actually really good news for us. If what was good and right and beneficial was always determined by me and my capacity, my commitment, my decisions, life would be complete chaos. No one could agree on anything because there's a problem with me. But we live with a law external to us, like a compass we check to check we're on track with it. Something that, even if we move around, always remains focused on true north. The law of God, his precepts, his decrees, they're never changing, always good, always trustworthy. As we make decisions in our life as Christians, we always have a choice to make. Will we listen to the internal voice of what seems right to me? Or will we listen to the external voice of God? You know, as social or culture wars rage around me and I'm pressured to side one way or the other, do I listen to the internal voice or the voice of God? As I'm saturated in a context of pursuing the Australian dream and securing the best education for my kids and a comfortable career and a life of leisure on the weekend, do I listen to the internal voice or the external voice of God? As I think about retirement and consider joining the convoy of grey nomads on trips around Australia, do I listen to the internal voice or the external voice of God. As I finalise my budget for the year and consider where to use all the resources God has given me, do I listen to the internal voice or the external voice of God? The psalmist says, verse 8, I will keep your statutes, never abandon me. So where does this land us? The law's good. We can't keep it, try harder? Is that what we're doing? I think this takes us to the very heart of the psalm and why the psalmist thinks the law is good in the first place, which is the last thing that I think the psalm is telling us for today, that the law is good because the law reflects God. We're not talking about moralism or legalism. We're talking about who is God. And this psalm tells us. Track with me in verse 9 as we finish off. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. This is the essence of the entire psalm. There's this relentless use of the second person pronoun now. It's like a battering ram, just again and again. You, your, your statutes, your commands, your words, which attaches God to the words and commands and precepts, decrees and promises that come from his mouth. They belong to him. God is as good as his word. He's not contained in his word, but he reveals himself truly in his word. Even if he hasn't revealed all there is to himself, we can trust that what he says belongs to who he is. So what we do with his words is what we do with God. If God makes a decree and we reject the decree, we reject God. If God makes a promise and we trust the promise, we trust God. If we think God's precepts are unwise, we think God is unwise. If we obey his commands, we obey God. So when the psalmist says in verse 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts, I will think about your ways, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What he's saying is that he's meditating on God, thinking about God's ways, delighting in God, not forgetting God. This is not really a love poem about the law. It's a love poem about God. I tricked you. I gave you a false start at the beginning. The psalmist only loves the law as he's picking off the petals of the sunflower as much as he loves God because the law shows him who God is. So, should Christians be down on the law? Never. Why is Paul so down on it then? He's not. Paul, along with the rest of the New Testament, says that we're saved by grace and we can't enter the kingdom of God by our own efforts to perfectly keep the law, but that never means that the law is not good. Does Jesus have a high view of the law? Absolutely, you betcha. If, we've been tracking, if you've been tracking through the, the Matthew series with us in the studies, Jesus amplifies the law. He extends its reach into our lives. It's not just about what we do, but what we think and feel inside. Jesus embodies Deuteronomy 6. He loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. And in Jesus, we find someone who loves his Father and who knew his Father. And he lived in perfect relationship with his Father, and there can be no other outcome from that and that the law is perfectly fulfilled. Because as he loves God, 
He loves God's word, the law. And because his love for God is authentic, he lives the law authentically. Not just a surface layer of the law that the Pharisees were committed to. Their law-keeping was more about the eyes of the people, what they saw. But Jesus' law-keeping was for the eyes of his Father in heaven. See, Jesus wasn't motivated to keep the law as a set of rules, but by his perfect love of the Father and the Father's love of him. That's the model of how Christians relate to the law, and I think that's the model that we get in Psalm 119. As Christians, we're not motivated to keep the law out of moralism or legalism. We're motivated to keep the law because the law reflects to us what God is like and who he is. We we grieve when we fail the law, like the psalmist, but we don't despair because we know we're saved by grace. And we continue to keep the law because the law shows us who God is. How do you go nurturing a delight in God? It will be limited to how much you delight in his word. We should make that a high priority in our lives, shouldn't we? Let's respond to his word now in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We're sorry for times we've neglected it, neglecting you. We're sorry for times we've disobeyed it, choosing our own judgments over yours. We're sorry for failing to do what your words command us. If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus' righteousness is ours by grace through faith. Thank you that you love us and have sent Jesus to die in our place, that we might live for you. Help us grow in our delight in your word. Help us be committed to your decrees. Help us meditate on your precepts, that it would cause our delight in you to grow. Amen.